Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Je suis Charlie. We take a look back at the terror attack in Paris, the aftermath, the fallout, and can the press be subdued by religious extremists? The new war front for the U.S. is cybersecurity, the next frontal war for the American government to deal with. At 5 o'clock, we will have... Rear Admiral Bob Day, former DHS Cybersecurity Director, joining us on the air live. Barbara Boxer says no to another term as senator. What is in the cards for the California Senate seat in 2016? That and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Al. Good morrow, Justin. Good morrow to you, too, sir. To my 11 o'clock across the table, he is the former Floor Chief for then-Congressman Gerald R. Ford, former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is Bob Hines. Hello, Robert. Hello, Justin. Good to be here on a cold day. And uh, who should be at the 12 o'clock position, but he is somewhere scampered off, as he's known to do from time to time. The former Chairman of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland and former 20th Century Fox lobbyist, Carl Tuvin. Hello, Carl. He'll hello. say hello when Hi he gets there. back. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. And just like Carl, we can't hear him on the air. So, to my, to my one o'clock, to my one o'clock, she is the former general counsel to the Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson, former Maritime Administration general counsel. She is the Honorable Denise Krep. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my one o'clock across the table, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count. Under four presidents, he's a longtime Senate staffer, Washington Insider. He is a distinguished and handsome factual fellow for the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my right, ironically, he is longtime Democratic political operative. He is a bar certified attorney in the District of Columbia in the great state of New York. He is 
Dan Littner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Justin. Glad to be here and glad to see Freedom Fries are no more. That's right. That's right. Well, for those of you who have not seen what's been going on over the past week, uh, last week a, a, a horrific act of cowardice, as it was put by French President Hollande, took place in the streets of, of Paris where three gunmen uh, of Muslim descent, self-proclaimed Islamic jihadists, took weapons into the offices of the French satire magazine Charlie Hebdo. Uh, as they were heard screaming, going in and out, uh, uh, various Muslim, uh, various Islamic religious epithets, as well as uh, saying that they were justifying, or this was justification for the Prophet Muhammad. As a result, uh, there were uh, several people killed, including several cartoonists in the staff meeting at Charlie Hebdo. Uh, two police officers lost their life in the attempted apprehension of these three gunmen. They then escaped, which then created a, nation, a nationwide manhunt in France, uh over uh over the course of several days they were finally cornered in a small town north of Paris uh in Damiens Angol a small town outside of what we know as Charles de Gaulle International Airport where the two uh the two gunmen then took a hostage at a printing facility and French national police and gendarmerie then killed in an assault on the facility then killed the two uh the two gunmen at the same time in what now is being called a somewhat coordinated uh effort at the same time that French authorities were cornering the two gunmen from the Charlie Hebdo incident what appears to be two gunmen took control of a Jewish marketplace in eastern or in western in the western part of Paris, as a result of that assault, two uh, one gunman is dead, one is still apparently on the loose, but four hostages that were taken by these two jihadists were murdered. Since then, world leaders have gathered from across the globe in support and in solidarity of the French people and this time of terror. As a result, there has been new hashtags and a new call for peace and anti-terroristic activity throughout Paris and throughout the major capitals of the world. The, the big There are so many questions that we have in this, obviously, but I, I want to start with you, Congressman Al. I mean, one, when you see something like this. You're an Emmy Award-winning broadcaster. You've been in, in, in the press and in media for decades. Uh, when, when you see religious fanaticism use weapons against what we inherently see as something as an inherent right, how much does that disturb you to the core? Well, it, obviously, it's, it's extremely disturbing. In fact, any kind of uh, fanaticism disturbs me, and and religious fanaticism seems to be about the worst kind because it's all based on faith, rarely on fact, and uh, and people become true believers in capital letters. The thing that <clears throat> that is really disturbing, though, is that the, the lack of understanding uh, that 
a free press is key to a democracy. Now, I don't think these people care about that. I don't think they care about democracy, and I don't think they care about a free press. Uh, <clears throat> but it's uh, the rest of us need to take this very seriously because that's what the threat is to. But, you know, I, there's so many factors that we want to talk about. I mean, we, we're going to talk in the second half hour about the possibility of these new, the new threat of these lone wolf attacks and what we can do to deal with it. But I want to focus on the first hour as far as the baseline of this. And, Alan Moore, I'll go to you next. You know, we look at, I mean, these, these are people that lost their lives because they literally drew satirical cartoons at a magazine that was financially struggling anyways, that had a limited following, uh, not unlike what we have here in the National Lampoon, but they drew something that was not the most in the best of taste, but it wasn't anything that would have caused them to lose their life. This is a serious upgrade in religious fanaticism going after people who are just inherently speaking their free mind. Well, I think what's 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 maybe a little different here is we can kind of those uh, we in the West can relate to people who are cartoon cartoonists, journalists, albeit for a marginal. Very, very uh, low circulation publication um, that operates out there in the margins, on the edge. Um, I don't. I doubt if anybody here is, is a regular viewer and would find the the, the stuff uh, the appealing to their own tastes. But, but we know Al, Al referred to re religious fanatics, um, which is a very narrow slice of of people who who have any kind of faith, but it's a particular powerful and virulent um, uh, type of passion that will cause these people to be blinded. Well, a they're they're highly manipulable, and two they they are willing to put their own lives at risk to do harm to others. This is one little example, but. Think of the the beheadings, the murdering of people in in towns and villages across uh, Iraq um, and Syria. Um, it's 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 part of this same enterprise of true fanatics willing to kill. The pro the, the thing that that strikes home is, oh my gosh, they're not doing their bad horrible killing. Uh, thousands of miles away. They're bringing it home. They're coming to Paris, for God's sakes. Are they going to come to New York next? Are they going to be in Chicago or Los Angeles? Um, it, it's, uh, it, it, it gets our attention again, not unlike uh, the days of 9-11 when we thought nothing <laughs> would ever be the same. But, you know, what surprised me about watching the events unfold, and I, and I watch these events unfold live, uh, I, I am now a huge fan of of the uh, French uh, foreign press's 24-hour news international news cycle, uh, France Foncotte, French 20, France 24. Watching that unfold live from Paris was, I mean, just very chilling. But the one thing I noticed about, uh, and Bob Hines, I'll ask you, was that there almost seems to be even during and even after and, and even watching the events surrounding the, the capture and killing of, of these two gunmen, almost a res, an inherent resiliency. Parisians went about their business 
in you know a little bit tense, but it didn't stop Paris from quote unquote being Paris. Did I misread that? I don't think you misread it. I mean, obviously Paris is a very um, large city. It's a very very cosmopolitan city, and uh, I don't care if you're going about your normal business or not. You're certainly shaken, no matter who you are. You, are, you can be 50 miles away or 100 miles away or 1,000 miles away. But, you know, if, if you're a French person, you really you are you're shocked. And I think the world should be shocked. I mean, these these people, as Alan said, are just they are absolutely uh, driven by an ideological or religious uh, belief. And, you know, Mohammed is, is uh, can, you can't, the only thing you say about Mohammed is he's a wonderful guy. Anything else is a, is a disaster. And he's, you know, you're, you're evil, you're an evil incarnate, you have to be erased from the earth. Anybody who would say anything negative about Islam is obviously out of their mind and has to be destroyed. These people are just crazy. Um, there's, no, there's no way to rationally approach them. There's no way to rationally deal with them. That's the biggest problem we have. I mean, the only way you can deal with them is kill them. Denise Crap. I'm going to date myself. You guys remember uh, Salman Rushdie and yeah, uh, Satanic yeah. Verses? You know, and the fatwas that um, Khomeini put out against him. I mean, it, it was a death threat. Um, and I, you know, he ended up going under British government protection for years because of Satanic uh, Verses. The difference, however, a book he wrote. A book he wrote. I'm yeah. sorry. He, uh, Salman Rushdie was a Indian uh, but British-born writer. Wrote a book in about 88, 89 called Satanic Verses. Um, there were many individuals in the Muslim community that were extremely upset with him. There were fatwas put out against him, essentially assassination, you know, threats. The British government ended up having to protect him for several years. The difference, um, however, was that was state sanctions, and those were governments that were going against him. These are private individuals that aren't controlled by states. And I, I, that's where the intelligence folks are going to be concerned, and the other governments are going to be concerned, saying, hey, wait a second, we don't control these folks. These lone wolves are individuals that we aren't sponsoring and that we can't say stop or go with. But, you know, Dan Lipner, when uh, you know, we, we saw what happened with Salman Rushdie during the Satanic Verses incident, and the fatwa was put out on him. I mean... We see satire about religion all the time. It's it's uh, it's it's just inherent to. I mean, not just our culture. I mean, the, the French are inherently satirical, uh, but it, it would be like Muslim extremists or or Christian religious extremists going after, uh, let's say, Seth MacFarlane from Family Guy, after all of the stuff that he's done about Christianity, Judaism. Uh, Buddhism, just, there's no religion sacred with him. I, I mean, is this something that is possibly going to scale him back or others like him? Well, it's already been done. Uh, the TV show South Park uh, a while back actually did uh, contemplate an episode where they're going to depict a, a representation of the prophet Muhammad. And Comedy Central demanded that the entire figure be blocked out for the episode. So, that has happened. We have responded and responded poorly, at least in that front. However, there's the other side of that response, which is how you respond to the Muslim community as a whole. And thus far, the French is still to be seen. But looking over uh, the last 
a kind of Islamic attack that occurred overseas. The Australians responded in phenomenal fashion, actually coming to the aid of Muslim families that they thought would be under threat. And they had, and I'm paraphrasing here, they basically had a walk a Muslim to work day from the citizenry of Australia to make sure everyone was safe. And that started the hashtag, I'll ride with you. Absolutely. And that kind of response and the real response and the real question is, how do we not create more of these extremists? Not just how do we kill the ones that exist, but how do we diminish the numbers in the future? Bob Bob Hines. On that point, I think we also have to understand that in a number of European countries, the, uh, the Muslim communities are not integrated very well with the native population. And uh, they are, a lot of them don't have jobs. Most kids don't go to school. It's, it's, I know, I know that's true in Germany. I know it's true in France. It's true in London. It's true in London. It's true in Italy. You name a country that has a, a, a European country that has a, a Muslim community, and by and large, they are um, a group apart. And that is, that is not healthy. But Carl, too, in, 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 the, in the case of the attack on the supermarket in Paris, that was a calculated, targeted attack on the Jewish community. Has, has uh, President Hollande and the French government, in your opinion, done a good job as far as showing uh, unity with the Jewish community in that area and showing that enough of a force protection unit that could convince the Jewish community in Paris, hey, we can be safe in our own neighborhoods? Well, not being there, I can't talk for exactly the question you're asking, but I think that the French are rallied around that community uh, in the march uh, that they had a few days ago, uh, a minister Netanyahu came from Israel to walk with all the leaders, including Abbas, from uh, from uh, Gaza and uh, my Gaza, but Palestine. So, uh, you know, from that standpoint, you know, it was good, and, and it was a reaction. And of course, they did it on Friday afternoon, right before Sabbath, which uh, where probably would have been more people in there uh, than than. Uh, I mean, well, you're talking three million people by some accounts in the streets of Paris at the same time. But, you know, Carl brings up a, a good point here, Dan Lindner. You literally had the leaders of, 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 of 40 major countries right there standing arm in arm with President Hollande of France. Uh, we had President Benjamin Netanyahu and, uh, and, and Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, within feet of each other in unity and solidarity against the Islamic extremist attacks in Paris. Does it shock you that it took this to get them together to agree on unity for something? With From extreme events, frequently amazing things can happen. And, and having 40 world leaders actually c- combine and literally grab hands on this issue is remarkable, and hopefully it should be heartening. And to some extent, 
uh, as, as Americans, and the White House has already said so, we should take pause that our leadership was literally an ocean apart uh, from everyone else. Well, we're going to talk about that as soon as I get to Alan Moore. Alan, you had a thought about this. Yeah, let's, before we get too excited about the fact that, that Netanyahu and Abbas were there uh, just uh, eight or ten feet apart, President Hollande of France did not want either one of them there. He sent word to to Israel through his uh, through their foreign ministry, uh, we would prefer that he not come. Netanyahu was not going to come, and then not, Netanyahu learned that that a couple of his political opponents were going to come, and he decided, well, he'll come. At which point, uh, the the Hollande government had to suddenly reach out. To, to Mahmoud Abbas, who they had also said, better if you don't come. It's just too provocative. It said, um, it turns out Netanyahu's going to be here, so if you want to come, you can come. I mean, was that so, a blessing in disguise? I don't know that it was a blessing in disguise. What I think was fortunate is there was, it was no incident. But let's not pretend that this was some great, wonderful gathering that everybody showed up. It was an accident. Um, and And... And it was sort of an accident, an unfortunate one, but we, we expected from our, our White House that, that, that the White House basically sent no one of significant well, Yeah, let's, let's, let's talk about that. Bob Hines, how big of a, not just a media or communications disaster, but how much, how much does that just deter an already fledgling administration in their international policy? How big of a hit was this for the president? What, what did you a fledgling? What did you a fledgling international policy? <laughs> you know what that is, right, Al? <laughs> well, I, I, me neither. When it's pronounced <laughs> properly, I, <laughs> I'm sick. Don't get on me about oh, this. That's right. I'm on medication. Poor baby. Yeah, that's right. Go to You've been sick a lot lately. Oh, that's not true. Stop. Are you going to answer, answer the question, Bob, or not? Yeah. Well, give me a chance. Everybody's having a good time. No kidding. Uh, it is not. You remember a, the question? I do. Oh, good. It is not a major disaster. That is clear. It's not. It was a. It was dumb, and uh, a bit. Uh, you know, just it may slip through. I can't imagine it slipping through. The, I use the word thoughtless. No, thought. That's a good way. It's a thoughtless idea. They should have sent someone significant there. Either the vice president or the secretary of state would be perfectly appropriate. Who was in town? Yeah, who was there? Yeah. They could have no, no, the, the attorney general was in town. The attorney general was in town. Yeah. Attorney general, secretary of state. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah they're all the same. But the, the point is, it looked pretty. it looked pretty bad that most of the Western allies we have – Many other countries that we do business with and, and have relationships with all came to Paris to stand in unity against this terrorist act. And where was the United States? Well, we were at home. We were doing nothing that was that was would be indicating that we were we were truly a part of civilized world saying that this is a bad thing, we got to stop this kind of stuff, and we're in it together, and we weren't there. Carl, two women, 30 seconds. Well, I'm not going to uh, apologize. The president, when he got off the plane from his, his vacation, went right away to the French embassy and signed the paper. The question is, 
where was the chief of staff and why didn't he call the president and say somebody has to go? And that's, that's a big question. Okay, we'll, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll bring that up and we'll talk about the new threats that come as a result of this horrific event in Paris. Uh, this is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelly's Backroom, go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's back room. The place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics. Hey, we're going to continue our discussion about the tragic events in Paris and the aftermath of the tragic events of the attack on Charlie Hebdo, as well as the uh, supermarket in eastern Paris. Uh, we were talking a little bit about about the, the president's reaction uh or lack of reaction in some instances, uh, and his lack of presence of a, of a high-level dignitary at the uh, gathering that occurred over the weekend. But, in fact, to the French's credit, they did come back, and uh, President uh, Hollande and his communications team acknowledge the fact that they are aware and that they are fully confident that America stands in unison with France uh, the French people in the aftermath of the Charlie Hebdo incident. Uh, it's still not a really, really good message to send out there. It, is this, as we move forward from this and we, we look down the road, the, the one thing that got me is the um, 
even in the attack on the supermarket, is it, we, we touched about it in the last segment, but the resilience of the French people in dealing with this it just continues to amaze me. Uh, they well, Wait a minute. <clears throat> the, the reaction of the people in New York to 9-11 was very, very impressive as, as well. Uh, I think there's something in the, in the nature of human nature that when you are met with a really cataclysmic terrorist thing, that you're going to pull together. And I think the French, I'm not trying to take anything away from them, but it seems to me we responded that way. I think the English would respond that way. The Spanish would respond that way. It, it, it's, a, it's a natural thing. If it hadn't happened, that would have been worse. Yeah, well, you know, I was talking about this with a, uh, a member of the law enforcement community here in D.C., and they pointed out to me, could you imagine if that had happened here in D.C., this town would still be in lockdown. This town would absolutely, this town would shut down for a week if that had happened. They're fully, con there are several people I've talked to that, that agree with that. They, uh, they said that even federal law enforcement people that I talked to were surprised at the fact that they literally went along their business in a major national capital. Uh, Denise Krupp. Right, but what Al has, what Al just said is the truth to it. I mean, London was bombed. It was, you know, the mid-2000s. Madrid was bombed in the mid-2000s. They went back to their everyday, you know, normal or normalcy as they could have after they were bombed. And you have to do that because when you're looking at world capitals, of which we are, you have not only a working government, but you have financial interests and you have tourism and you have other things that are going to be directly impacted if you do shut this city down. So while the law enforcement folks may say, hey, lockdown, we need to you know, get all the evidence, we need to do everything we need to do, others that are not in the law enforcement community say, no, you cannot do that because if you do do that, you shut things down and it's more of an impact and you can't do that to people. People need to bounce back after this type of an incident. Dan, Dan Lipner? Actually, Denise makes a very good point and I actually never thought about it that way. Segmenting out what uh, Congressman Al was mentioning, which is the populace responding to it and then how law enforcement responds to it. And I, I've frequently been bothered by how we go into lockdown in this country and don't put our best foot forward when an incident occurs. Whereas in London, when the bus bombings occur, not only were they were the Londoners back out doing their thing, they were back on buses on that same route that same day. And that well, you're also talk, you're also talking about a city that has been dealing with bombings since the '70s through the Troubles. I mean, you had the IRA bombings as well as the bombings that happened in, uh, 2000, in 2009. This is true. But even then, as far as I know, historically, they responded well to it. And it's not the same kind of response that we have. We can learn from their lessons. Alan Moore. Yeah. It, it wasn't extraordinary to me that, that people in, in, in Paris and the rest of France um, returned rather quickly to their daily lives. First of all, people have, have jobs. They have a need to get food, to prepare food, to, to be with friends. What was extraordinary in this case to me was one and a half million people getting out into the streets and 40 heads of state showing up from around the world and lots of other significant delegations from other countries, some more significant than others, as we were, as we were discussing. And I'm with Carl. I don't blame the president for that, except for the fact that it's his staff 
who allowed him apparently not to even know, not to even know there was an invitation. He should never have gone, but he should have sent either Kerry or Biden or even a Hillary Clinton if those two weren't around. But Kerry was in India. He could have broken off and gone over, and if not, then Joe Biden. But they, they, we look sort of bad in our own eyes. We got this extraordinary uh, acknowledgement of that, an apology from the uh, from the White House press secretary. But as far as the Europeans were concerned, they didn't care. It was not a big deal. They were so focused on what was happening in France and in this extraordinary gathering of European heads of state. It's like, who needs the Americans? It's fine if they come. It's fine if they don't. It was a much that piece is a much bigger thing here in America than it was over there. But it does speak to this staff question. Well, how come there was no obvious conscious decision made about who to go, about whether to send Eric Holder, who was in Paris but couldn't get across town to to join? That was all sort of bizarre. But that's an inside America debate more than than anything significant. On the day in Paris, Dan, let uh, Carl Tubin go ahead. You know, I'm trying to think. I remember on 9/11, and everybody chimed in, states that uh, I tried to go downtown to uh, to get into the offices of Coca-Cola, which is right on Faraday uh, on the uh, square, and uh, <clears throat> and you know we got to a certain point you couldn't go any further. But I think that only lasted for about one day, and then everything kind of. The other people were going into their offices, yeah. and then for a day or two, everything was running as it was before. Well, you got a phone call. Caller from the 703, you're on the air with Backroom Politics. What's your question? Yeah, I would just remind yeah, us that D.C. Uh, didn't lock down on 9-11. Um, um, the only thing the that only impacted, impacted severely was I eventually say that air traffic would have been uh, impacted in Paris if they used an aircraft there. Good point. Very good point. Thanks for your call. Yeah, I think you're speaking a little bit when you when you were saying that you talked to some law enforcement people that said, "Can you imagine what would happen in D.C.?" Yeah, I can imagine what would happen in D.C. if there was a publication that were where there were a bunch of killings, and then a couple of days later, a, a, a large <clears throat> delicatessen in an ethnic neighborhood was taken over, and people were shot. We would not have shut the city down. We didn't shut the city down after the Navy Yard killings, um, and and uh, and and those and and one of the things that keeps people out there is. Am I a likely target? Well, I don't. I don't work for or work nearby of this very controversial uh, publication who was targeted. And if I'm not a member, but of, you are a weekly member of Backroom Politics. That's true. So are you, I'm telling you, you kind of a big window. Yeah. You gotta be careful about 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 coming to Shelley's back room. And, and I am not the gray-haired gentleman. None of them. I am not any of the gray-haired gentlemen. I'm gonna get under the table. Wow. Yeah. Great. 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 Let the fat moderator take the bullet. Good job. Yeah. All right. Hey, we can all vote for that. Yeah. Great. Three of us have got to dye our hair. You're closest to the window. Yeah. Exactly. And my back's to it. But. But but Alan, I, I hear I hear what you're saying, and and, and that's and that, and that and that's very well too. But it does it does bring up the question though, you know, when when we we, we look, this, these are all the world has changed even since the Navy Yard incident that happened that that locked down a good chunk of our southwest quadrant of the city, but did not lock down the city as a whole no, for a long, even, very long at all. And even that wasn't very it wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't very long, long at all. Now, right. You happen to be a Jew living in Paris. And there are about half a million Jews in all of France. 
it's less than 1% of the population. And th this, this delicatessen in, in, a, in a Jewish neighborhood was targeted, then, you, then, then I'm guessing that the behavior of the, of, of the Jewish community was much more cautious, much more measured. There are yeah. 700 Jewish schools in France and thousands now, four to 5,000 French troops guarding those schools. So it's not as though everyone is equal in all of in, in, in all of this. And if you feel like you're a member of a targeted group, you're probably going to stay home. Dan Lipner? Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that the one Jewish victim from the from the from the Jewish grocery store, uh, his family has said he's going to be buried in Israel because they're afraid of vandalism against the grave. Uh, in addition, while Bibi attending the, the march, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu attending the march. Uh, he, he also suggested that the, the, the Jews in France come home to Israel where it's safer. So this, this is not all profiles and courage and offerings. I, may, to be clear, I'm not slating the family for their decision, but uh, Netanyahu's statement wasn't helpful. But Bob, but Bob Hines, you know, we brought this up a little bit with Alan Moore. We look at even the different world that we're in today, even after the incident in Paris, this is something that we as Americans and in any major uh, urban city in the United States or even in the Western Hemisphere, we've got to be cognizant of the fact that, hey, uh, this these lone wolf attacks, they're not very technologically advanced. They're not very sophisticated in their, in their planning or their execution. These are just jihadists with guns and in some instances explosives that are wanting to do damage in the name of Allah. This is this the new reality we have to be fearful of. Yes, it is. I think it is. I don't it's awfully hard to find needles in haystacks, so to speak. I mean, so many of these people are being, you know, uh, the intelligence agencies of the major countries uh, are are checking on these people when they travel, when they move, when they, you know, when they try to when they cross borders. But there's there's no way to ensure that we're always going to be able to catch them that five minutes before they start shooting. We're not going to be able to do that. And if they if uh, if three or four people uh, were walking around Washington looking at uh, you know scoping something out, what they might where they might cause some trouble. If they're not if they're not on a watch list, nobody knows they're here. How are you going to find them? I mean, it's a big city. It's a lot of people, and I don't see how you. I mean, I think we are we are in we mean the Western world are pretty much in a long term struggle with a relatively small number of people who are not you know being masterminded by other governments necessarily, but they are just. People who are dissatisfied. There are people who are angry. There are people who who have a, a, a more than a, a lump on their shoulder, a chip. They they are just really PO'd, and they're they are prepared to die for whatever cause it is they're ready to die for. But they're willing to do it. Congressman Al, sounds like you're describing a good chunk of the population rather knowledgeable. Yes. <laughs> Well, you know, we yeah, have those we people in our... We, we do indeed. And they're not driven by religion. No. No. Uh, no. Carl Tubin. I have, you know, I have said before, and I'll say it again, that you know, we've had Al-Qaeda, now we have this, uh, this uh, other group, 
and there are other different little groups, but as they die out, they're going to, because of the anger, there are going to be others that pop up. So this is going to happen for a few generations, unfortunately, until, until, and hopefully, everybody can live together in the same world. Dan Lipner, um, this is going to exist as long as humanity exists. Uh, the idea that it's not is foolishness. The only question is numbers. And this is not a battle you fight with bullets. It's, it's the idea that you, you fight with ideas. Liberalism with a small L for my conservative friends, that, that the battle of ideas, there's a democracy to it. And making sure that's how we try to fight this battle as much as possible. Not to say there is no need for bullets, but to actually fight this battle, that's how you do it. Congressman Al. I think there's a, there's a very, you mentioned liberalism and, 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 and uh, conservatism, and I'm not talking about the extremes. I'm talking about right of center, left of center kind of things. <clears throat> Liberalism's got a lot to lose in this because it's the conservatives in the Muslim religion, the, the people that take everything literally and so forth, that are causing this and providing a great opportunity for conservatives in France, their right-wing party, that to, 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 take, to take the popular side of this. We can have a very, very, very conservative right-wing kind of thing moving in the whole world. Denise Crouch. My, my problem with what's going on is the Koran does not say kill. I mean, I, I've studied the Koran. I mean, it, it, it doesn't say that. It's being manipulated. And, and what's happening in some of the countries right now, and it's rather interesting, is that they are working with the religious leaders to um, make sure that what they are teaching about the Koran is what the Koran says, which means that they're having, a, a, I don't want to say strict construction of the Koran, because that's not exactly it, but they're teaching a version of the Koran that doesn't say kill. So what they're saying is, this is what the Koran says, and this is how you should interpret it. And that's important, first of all, because these governments are making sure that the religious leaders still try to overthrow them, but they're also important because they're making sure that people hear another version of the Koran that is not being taught by other people. Bob Hines. Al said something that we ought to think about, that the, this kind of activity is causing some, particularly in Europe, in Spain, in Greece, in France, in the Netherlands, right-wing political parties gaining strength. Now, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't mean Nazi-type things. I mean just politically conservative parties, and that may not necessarily be a real good thing either, because some of those organizations are somewhat extreme, not not violently extreme, but their policies are extreme, and, and they, are, uh, they are not part, they are not easily assimilated uh, as far as working governments with other governments around them because they are very, uh, they have very hard principles, much like our Tea Party people, and that's not an easy group to work with either here. Carl Tuvin. <laughs> One of the ways <clears throat> that some of this can stop is <clears throat> a concerted effort of the three peoples of the world to have Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries take out of their books 
all the hate for the Jews. And, and they teach that in their schools. So kids who are very young learn from all the way up about these bad people in the world. And, if they, if, and it even happens in, in England. In some of their uh, books, uh, anti-Semitism is taught. And, it's, 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 uh, and there is a movement to have this done, to have some of these books give the right <coughs> history uh, and, and, and the right background of some of them. Some of these books even deny the Holocaust ever existed. But you know, one of the one of the concerns that they have right now, Congressman Al, in France, uh, for many of the moderates on either moderate left or moderate right, is that the French government and the French Assembly may do a lot of knee-jerk reaction legislation in response to these efforts, uh, and a lot of people compare it to the knee-jerk reactionary legislation that was put out after 9-11, i.e. Patriot Act, for example. Yeah. Uh, is, that, is that a real concern, especially after what we would hope that legislators globally would look at perhaps lessons learned after 9-11? I think you've got to be concerned about it for, for two reasons. One, the people who are of a right wing, as opposed to just a conservative, who are of a right wing nature, are going to use this as an opportunity to become more popular if they can and push their thing farther. The other thing is, is that I have no confidence in liberals, the, the left of center people, being able to explain their point of view in something that will get to the broad American middle class. The uh, liberals have always liked to talk to themselves. A uh, big example was back during the, the, the McCarthy days it was when <clears throat> the, the liberals came up with the, with the idea that they were super patriots, and that communicated to liberals. Super patriotism was wrong. To the average American, if patriotism is a good thing, what's wrong with super patriotism? It was a, it was a PR disaster, and... and, and if, if if they react, if the liberals react that way in this instance, they're only going to feed the whole thing. Alan Moore, yeah, I, thinking about this, this uh, uh, the impacts that these things have after the fact, and they, they no question that it feeds um, uh, xenophobia, this uh, nation-centered. Um, us against them kind of mindset, and it puts minorities, no matter the country, um, in, in a position of fear and vulnerability. Um, and we see it in this country. We see it. We'll see it now in, in Europe. The, the, the movements we're talking about that that are nascent, that that exist, and then every time there's a new incident, it it feeds the beast, as it were. Um, and and it's it's the time it's a time where you need true leaders, political leaders, um, uh, thought leaders, um, business leaders, um, people to stand up in, in in unison and say that's wrong, no, don't do that. And and again, in a way, um, I've never seen a million and a half people. That's a lot of people. It's really amazing. Literally in the streets that, of Paris. Those that, are tight streets, you look too. At, you look out at some of those pictures and, and, and know that in other parts of France, there were also 
tens of thousands of people also. And, and by the way, there was a, there was there was there was a, there were thousands of people at a demonstration that was led by uh, the French ambassador here in Washington D.C. That went from the museum up to the law enforcement memorial. There were there were thousands of people at that. Uh, this is a definitely global global experience. Denise Krupp. Right, but as they're all marching arm in arm, I can tell you, Andrea Merkel is going, hmm, maybe I should be calling home right now thinking about what the Kurds are doing. Alain is going, let's start making more checks into what's going on with the Algerians. The Brits are going, hmm, we're going to be thinking about the stuff that's going on right now. And the reason they're thinking about that is because it could happen in, within their own homegrown population. And those homegrown populations were in that march because they're very concerned right now about the backlash. And they should be because there is a resurgence. Le Pen, in, you've got yes. in, um, in France, you've got the same thing going on in Britain. You've got the same thing going on in Spain right now. And while they may have muffled themselves over the past week, trust me, in the background right now, they're, they're saying... Well, France is, but France is, kind of, France is kind of unique, though, uh, Dan Lipner. When you look at, you know, they are literally just coming off of the heels of a very nationalistic president in Sarkozy, and they've gone to the left-of-center policies of, 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 of Francois Hollande, is there now a situation where somebody like a Sarkozy could regain a lot of momentum and go to the other extreme inside French government and inside France? I mean, that's still to be seen. Uh, the French don't fully have that history. They're, and somewhat uniquely, well, a little bit, um, but uniquely, this part of their battle is that you all might remember a few years back, the, the banning of the hijab uh, in, in France as being distinctly anti-French. Which was very Sarkozy-esque. Very Sarkozy-esque, but in popular elections and democracies, he obviously was speaking just for himself. Um, that th there was that was a battle, but the question was it wasn't an anti-Muslim thing; it was an anti-religion thing in France. So that's still to be seen. Yet, should it be feared that, as everyone else, has, as others have mentioned, that there will be a right-wing xenophobic backlash? Yeah, but the question is the overall response. It's, and how how they choose to respond. I, I'm hoping for the best. I mean, they're, having the same, they're having the same immigration problems we're having. Just don't insert people coming from Mexico and Honduras. Insert somebody who's coming from, again, it's going to be Algeria, the Kurds, and the others. I mean, they were, prior to this, positioning themselves to strengthen their immigration laws to prevent people from coming in. I mean, Cameron right now in England has got folks right now behind one. You know, we're, we're a little concerned, and he was prepping for how do we close off the British border. I mean, that's one of the reasons he wants to pull out of the European Union. The same thing that's happening right now in Germany. I mean, you've got a lot of folks. Well, the Swiss have already done it. Well, the Swiss, the Swiss have already done it. Let's see what happens with Germany. Let's see what happens with some of the other countries after this. Will they pull back from the immigration policies they were beginning to propose? You know, it's, what's you know, you know, it, it, it's it's ironic that. Uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, a congressman now, uh, said that our our biggest threat of something like this happening right now, our biggest Achilles heel in all of this, talking about the American government, is our visa waiver program. She says that's our biggest Achilles heel. Uh, 
taking a big leap out there by saying, hey, look, um, we should we should have everybody on close watch visas, uh, not real democratic on her end, but she is the chairwoman of uh, the intelligence community. Is, is that going to get some play, do you think? I think because of her stature, it will get some play. <clears throat> but I, th- I think that the, the the initial reaction of a lot of people who hold my position on the political spectrum would be to uh, resist what she's saying. But this is Diane Feinstein, hardly a bomb thrower in general, and and uh, I think you should give some careful thought. Uh, I'm I may after careful thought end up disagreeing with her, but on the other hand, I don't think it's something you should just dismiss out of hand, given the source. Denise Krepp, is is visa waiver program, is it as big an Achilles heel as she says? No, I I think there are some more significant problems. I'm not sure why she latched onto that one, but no, I I disagree with it. Alan Moore? My understanding of visa waiver is is that um, the, the easiest way to get access to America is if you have $10 million to bring over here and invest, and then if you, then you're on the fast track. There aren't that many people who, that, that, that is not a wide open door to America. Um, might, might there be a no couple bombers? Might there be a couple of bucks? Yeah, probably, you know, not too many. It's like if you've got $10 million somehow or other, even if it's some, some outside source, you're going to try to figure out how to keep it and maybe go in a different direction. Um, so, uh, I don't, I, from what I, from my knowledge, I don't see that as, 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 a, as our major, uh, point of exposure. Going, going around the table real quick, I want to, uh, reflect a little bit on this. A lot of people are calling this France's 9-11. This is, in many instances, notwithstanding the events of World War II, uh, this is their their biggest act of terrorism inside their borders. Globally, everybody looks at 9-11 as saying it was a world-changing event, that our world changed that day. Is it fair to say that what happened over the past week in Paris is another example of our world is going to change as a result of what I happened think, there? I think this is an, Congressman example, this is an example of what happens when the world changed. Bob Hines? I agree. I think I think we're going to see a continuation of these kind of attacks. Small groups uh, not doing huge amounts of damage, but, but scaring the hell out of a whole lot of people and killing a bunch of people in the process. Carl Tubin? <clears throat> On uh, the day after 9-11, when the congressman they all went out to some ships of the Capitol and sang the Star Signal Banner. Uh, this morning, or sometime today, the, the French Assembly met and sang their national anthem. Uh, <clears throat> my only hope is, is that our security people uh, are in this country are peeking up for what possibly could happen here. I noticed on TV uh, they're already alerting airports to to be more vigilant. Denise Krapp? I'm, I'm going to break with this. 9-11 was our watershed moment. It was our watershed moment here in the United States because it happened to us. There had been a lot of other terrorist attacks that had happened previous. Munich 
in 72. You had the Bader Meinhof gang. You had a lot of nasty folks operating and blowing up airports in the mid-1980s. But it didn't happen to us. 9-11 happened to us. 3,000 people were killed and showed that there was a greater determination. So it's been going on for a while, folks. Unfortunately, now they've just been more successful. Alan Moore? Yeah. There isn't a a distinction between 9-11, which was just, let's go knock some buildings out and kill as many innocent people as we possibly can, not to defend at all what happened in in France, but there there was a, a, a specific target, a small publication. They went after it. They killed a bunch of people. It's nutty. It's crazy. It's scary. But there was a target and a and a and a and a, and a twisted, strange logic to what they were doing. The follow-on try, effort to escape seemed more associated with trying to trying to get away. The the, the, the a closer a closer cousin to 9/11 was the Boston Marathon uh, bombings, where again. A big, big crowd of people. Kill a bunch of them. See if you can create terror. It's like subway bombings. It's just generate fear among the populace and see if you can get them to stay home. Um, I have no doubt that events like that will continue to emerge. We have been predicting since the the, the growth of of ISIS, ISIL, that these Europeans and others who are going over to Syria getting trained and fighting are going to bring it home. That's happening. Dan Lipner, real quick. The question is how it's manipulated. After September 11th, yes, we sang on the Capitol steps uh, the Star-Spangled Banner, but we also passed passed the Patriot Act, and we also have had protests against the the Ground Zero Mosque in this country. Not always the best. The question is how we, as, as a collective, respond as a whole. Right. Well, with that, I'm going to be, let that be the last word. Uh, when we're going to change gears when we come back at the top of the hour. We're going to talk about cyber warfare, cyber security, and is our country and our economy ready to handle that challenge? Joining us live on the air will be former DHS cybersecurity executive and former CIO of the United States Coast Guard, Admiral Robert Day, will join us live. This is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. 
However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town And, and welcome back. We're live here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. You know, we're doing a live radio show, Congressman. Oh. Anytime. Oh. Anytime, sir. When Thanks. are we starting? Uh, we're starting now. Oh, in okay. fact, All right. let's try this again, shall we, Congressman? Yeah. So, uh, joining us on the phone live is the former DHS cybersecurity executive and former CIO of the United States Coast Guard. He is... Admiral Robert Day. Admiral Day, thanks for joining us here on Backroom Politics. Hey, Justin. Good to be with you. Well, Admiral, uh, for those of our listeners who want to give them a heads up on what's going on, in case you haven't seen the news, we have had a several cyber attacks, beginning with the cyber attacks on Sony after the release of The Interview, a movie that was put out around Christmas time that was not put out but put out. But there, uh, the change in strategy was as a result of what has been linked to North Korean hackers. We also then have gotten word over the past 24 hours that the Office of Personnel Management and our own Central Command have had their Twitter accounts and their own firewalls hacked. Admiral Day, let me start with you. You know, on a global scale, We've heard cybersecurity as being an issue. It's a threat to our economy. It's a threat to our government. But what is the reality of the threat? How big a threat and how vulnerable is the United States when it comes to a cybersecurity? Well, as I say, the threat's been escalating over the last decade. And, again, it's because the technology is rapidly changing and the capabilities are getting much better for the adversary. I mean, you know, now you have capabilities out there that uh, are cheap to buy. I mean, literally, this is not like conventional warfare where, you know, to get your hands on, uh, you know, massive weapons that cost, you know, nation states capability to build them. Now, 
you know, literally hacktivists of all forms, whether they're nation state or just rogue groups, um, can literally purchase for dollars um, the ability to be able to launch capabilities against any target they want, whether it's federal, um, whether it's uh, in the private sector, uh, anywhere. So, you know, the nature of the game continues to rapidly change and escalate. Um, you know, and yes, is there a threat, continued threat? Yes, it's growing, and uh, it's going to require various different responses um, that are, are being developed. And you're going to have to start turning very fast because, you know, you know, there is no such thing as saying we're not going to have breaches. That's just anybody who says that they're unbreachable, um, you know, they're living in a different place uh, that they shouldn't be because the bottom line is, with the capabilities that are out there, with the pace of advance, everybody's eventually going to get breached. The question then becomes, what's the severity of those breaches, and uh, you know, what can you do best to be responsible and try to prevent them to the maximum extent? But the biggest thing is, is to understand when you have been breached and what the potential impact is. Admiral Day, uh, Secretary Chuck Hagel, Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel, yesterday said that the breach on CENTCOM was not that big of a deal, uh, that uh, he, the Pentagon spokesperson, Colonel Steve Warren, said that the CENTCOM breach was an act of cyber vandalism. We heard the same message coming out of the Obama White House uh, regarding the attack on the Sony Corporation surrounding the release of the interview around Christmas time. Is there a distinction as far as cyber vandalism? Is it just more of a nuisance as as opposed to a national security threat, or is all of this part of a bigger national security threat that Americans should pay attention to? Well, let's let's start with the difference. There's a massive difference between the defacement of your Twitter and your YouTube account versus what happened to Sony. Sony had probably hundreds of millions of dollars of damage, the loss of intellectual capital, and then privacy concerns, particularly um, related to their clients and businesses that are related to them. Hacking a YouTube or a Twitter account and defacing it, yes, that would be to me, you know, is not even close to the same scale of what happened to Sony or even some of the financial um, systems or even Home Depot uh, and uh, the likes of those. Um, two totally different things. Yes, it's a nuisance. Luckily, the um, CENTCOM systems, you know, those were public systems out on Twitter and YouTube, not connected to any of the capabilities inside of CENTCOM, um, whereas the Sony breach, when you're having that much damage to intellectual capital and literally turning their computers um, into uh, useless devices, much like the attack on Aramco a couple of years ago where 35,000 computers were literally turned into bricks and had to be thrown away, um, there's two. That's two major differences there, and again, it's the entire scale across the cyber spectrum, um, from just pure hacktivism annoyances, um, all the way to nation-state um, entities who are seeking primarily um, to extract capital or information um, from you. And then you got the whole other range of it um, of cyber criminals that are infecting your your home computer and then demanding ransom to unlock it to get your files back. So we have a broad spectrum across the cyber landscape of, you know, who are the players and what are the types and their motivations um, 
for the attacks that they're laying out there and what truly is the impact of those attacks. So I would I would definitely suggest there's massive differences between what happened to CENTCOM and what happened to Sony. Admiral, when you know when we hear about these cyber attacks, we hear about the uh, organizations inside the government, such as the Cyber Command with the U.S. Air Force and DOD, uh, the National Cyber Security Center with, with DHS and, and Department of Justice. When we hear about incidents like this, it seems like the government and even industry is playing catch-up. When we find another closure to that gate or that loophole, they're just advancing quicker than we can stop it. Is that an accurate assessment, or are we keeping up with the threat? Well, it's a challenge. There's no doubt about it. And as I say, if you, as I indicated earlier, everybody is breachable, and there's going to continue to be weaknesses, you know, no matter how much money you throw at it. But the piece that really we need to work on, and uh, the president and the uh, legislature are working on these items right now, is information sharing such that, you know, when you've been breached, you know you've been breached, so there's capabilities there to know. Um, and then when you've been breached, sharing it. So it's sort of like, you know, the situation now because of legislation, liability, and a bunch of other things. Is So imagine that our cyber world, you know, is, has a bunch of sentinels of villages all the way around the perimeter. You know, and today, you know, it's like, okay, I see a threat. One of these sentinels sees the threat but doesn't tell the rest of the sentinels out there, hey, you should look for this because I'm seeing it. Because, again, people are concerned, you know, particularly in the private side is, you know, that you are, much like in the case of Sony and other things, is that if you've been breached, that's a potential liability to you. It's a potential, um, you know, loss of revenue. It's a potential loss of confidence from your customers. We've got to find mechanisms so we can share breach data and the fact that you've been breached as well as information on what you're seeing so we can share that across the public and private um, uh, you know, ecosystem, uh, you know, much like diseases. You know, hospitals report I'm seeing things like we've got to get past this such that we can easily share this data and then analyze it and push fixes or recommendations out very quickly. And that's what the National Cyber Incident Center and U.S. CERT are really there for is, you know, we've got to get past this and get some legislative um, materials out there. And, and again, the president's, you know, just uh, recently recommended some executive action that he's going to take in terms of this type of reporting as well as legislative action to get some of the protections that industry believes that they need in place such that they can securely share this information and not necessarily, you know, be uh, just beaten up in the public as the result of what the potential consequences were. So a lot of work to be done there. I think that's probably one of the biggest things to help us in this cycle of trying to keep up. Again, you are never going to always be able to stop every single attack um, all the time. What you can do is do the risk management that you need to do to say, how do I protect? What's my most sensitive data? How do I protect it? You know, what, you know, is my PII, my intellectual capital, these types of things is where you're going to put the emphasis on really protecting. You're not necessarily going to spend tons and tons of money to protect your Twitter page from a defacement. But, boy, you know, your intellectual capital of your company or, you know, personal data of the personnel, um, financial data, we want to put an emphasis on that. And that gets into the NIST framework, which companies are starting to use more and more 
to analyze where their real risk is and starting to put an emphasis on more protections there. The only true risk-free is not to be connected to the Internet. And then even then, you're not risk-free because you're still subject to insider threat. Right. Dan Lipner, you have a question for Admiral Robert Day. I, the threats that we face as far as cyber for our financial markets as well as our intellectual security seem clear, especially with the, the, the attacks on Sony. Uh, but the, my question is, what other threats are out there that translate into, for lack of a better phrase, the, the non-cyber secular world? What kind of, what, how is that passed through that normal people might see in their day-to-day lives should an attack be effective in some other venue? Well, you want to talk about probably the most severe um, place where attack would show up to everybody, and that's in our critical infrastructure. And that's an area that we're just starting to scratch the surface on, whether it's the electric grid, the water grid, um, even manufacturing, transportation. Um, those areas um, you know, are the ones that we're probably starting to become the most concerned about and would, in many cases, from a um, terrorist or even a nation-state standpoint, be a point of emphasis for them because of the economic impact that can potentially result, as well as just the pure terror that you have. Uh, I mean, turn off the lights in a city uh, or, you know, affect transportation grids. Um, those are some serious areas that, uh, you know, we're really just starting to really look at and, uh, you know, groups across the country are really just starting to focus on. Uh, the Coast Guard, when I was a CIO there, we were really just starting to look at maritime critical infrastructure. Without going into too much detail, how could a cyber attack on, on the, the grid actually take place? I mean, most people, I don't think, see, see their 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 outlet that they plug in their iPhone as as a central cyber threat to anything other than their phone specifically. Correct. But again, we because of the complexity of the systems that control most of our critical infrastructure, they are automated systems and uh, using what they call SCADA systems that uh, do a majority of the control by switching loads across the power grid, um, you know, bringing plants on, bringing plants off, um, even controlling generators and turbines of those natures. You know, these things are, you know, it's split-second decision-making and being controlled um, by systems, essentially, algorithms as well as hardware that are doing the physical management of them that are reporting up, obviously, to command centers for people to monitor, see what's going on. But in many cases, some of these systems are self-regulating based on algorithms that have been programmed into them. Um, there are weaknesses in, because, again, most of these systems somewhere are tied to the net, whether it's an internal network which has interfaces to the Internet. So the threat is, one, software embedded that's in these systems that has weaknesses already, and then, two, the ability to come in through the Internet or breach a corporate network or a utility network to actually start getting access to tell these controllers to do something that we really don't want them to do. So, that, you know, it's there. Yes, this is technical, but the bottom line is it's not necessarily at your house. But even today, I mean, we're starting to put smart meters on our homes for gas, for everything like that. Um, there's other threat vectors that are eventually going to come in that realm, too. Uh, Alan Moore, question for Admiral Bob. Yeah, Admiral. Uh, you talked a little bit about the what you fear. I wonder if you would care to talk about who you fear. That is, uh, there's a lot of speculation about a weakened 
and cornered, if you will, uh, Russia these days. Um, they're they're under attack. There's sanctions against them. They're hit very hard by the the, the reduction in uh, in gas and oil prices. And so there's some speculation out there that if they wanted to show the rest of the world, you know, stop ignoring and punishing Russia. Uh, we know they got a lot of smart uh, computer people. Should we be worrying specifically about Russians? Who who should we worry about, or can we even define very well uh, where threats might come from? Well, we we know where the threats come from in many cases. Uh, um, nation states are more interested in gaining a advantage, and that's in many cases stealing intellectual capital, gaining. Um, insight into what our activities are, what our plans are, and those natures. Uh, again, a mainstream, and when I say mainstream, uh, you know, a state um, probably launching that first uh, cyber attack or really taking an action of that nature, I think that they know that the risk of that is probably fairly great, that uh, they don't want to do that because of the capabilities that um, we hold um, they don't want that unleashed on them in a retribution or anything. And again, this gets into a whole arena that's still yet to be fully start fleshed out. You know, we need international discussions, international regulations as towards appropriate behavior in the cyberspace. The threat uh, actors that I'm more worried about um, would be, um, you know, a rogue element um, that it does acquire capability. Um, to really, you know, say instead of uh, you know taking an act um, of terrorist action like you know was taken in Paris this last week, is say you know now I can do a standoff and I can literally launch it from anywhere I want with tools that I want, and you're seeing that against some corporations, you know, who people have ideological um, pieces against. Um, that's a threat vector because you don't you don't necessarily have the penetration in the insight into what their capabilities are and when and where they might going to launch them. Whereas, you know, uh, the nation states are always watching each other, and that's always been the case, you know, even in a pre-cyber type of environment. But Congressman Al, you have a question for Admiral Day. Yes, the, the, the question that Alan asked, uh, who do we have to worry about? If you look at North Korea, that caused all the problems for Sony. If it weren't so serious, that would be almost another movie, Dumb and Dumber Three. You know, <laughs> uh, the and it was just absurd. I've, I've talked to somebody who's seen the movie. They said it's a terrible movie, and for a nation to get all upset over a, 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 a thing aimed at juveniles, for crying out loud, <laughs> is is funny if it weren't so serious. So you've got you've got all the people you mentioned, and then you got crazies, you know, that just fly off the handle and do really da dangerous things. Yeah, and, and and actually, Admiral, that brings up a, the, the congressman's comments. Bring up a good question: Is you know when we see state-sponsored uh, cyber attacks like we saw engaged by Sony, it's being largely reported that North Korea directly had a hand in the cyber attack on Sony Corporation. When when we see that, is is it the state sponsored where there could be 
larger amounts of resources uh, uh, affiliated or available to the hacking army that scares us most? Well, I think those are the ones that we're most concerned about. So when a nation state is providing resources and, you know, without getting into details, you know, there are several of them out there that fund, you know, they're not taking direct action themselves. They're assembling rogue groups and then resourcing them to be able to do capabilities for them. And those are the ones where you start really getting a problem because, one, this requires a workforce with great education. This is not something at least to be able to take down, um, you know, a fairly well-defended organization. Sony, in most cases, had done things right and had done, you know, the right uh, protections in place. But when you're taking and having, you know, um, capabilities that have been funded by a nation state with smart people that they've recruited and in many cases um, have brought up through the organization to be able to apply their skills against, um, you know, infrastructure, against corporations, against, uh, you know, governments, um, that's the real challenge is when you've got that. Guy. And, and, and every nation's starting to really be concerned about it. I mean, the Danes, the Danes just invested $100 million in cyber capabilities. Um, you know, you just say, why? I mean, you know, not, but really it's becoming a focal point of um, many nations around the world that uh, this is an issue. It's going to continue to be an issue. It's a, uh, you know, it's still kind of the Wild West because there's not total international convention. And yet we've got to be able to get past and get this information sharing piece um, such that, one, you can recognize that you've been breached, and then you can take action to try and resolve yourself. And there's a resilience piece of it. If you're going to get breached, how do you come back, and how do you come back quickly? At, uh, Bob Hines, question for Admiral Dak. Admiral, um, I'm a bit of, I'm not much of a technology guy, but I have a, I have a pretty basic question, I think. When an attack comes uh, from a source, at either in the government area or in private enterprise or whatever, are, are we always able to know who the attackers are or where they are? No, that's one of the major challenges um, in the cyber domain is attribution. Um, attribute, because the way these attacks are done, literally, they can you know, emanate from anywhere in the world. They've taken over servers, even home PCs that are used uh, in botnets to launch these denial of service attacks against um, various different targets. And actually, getting the exact attribution is very, very difficult. And again, you're looking, you know, as you learn trends and techniques and tactics, um, you have some capability to be able to say, we've seen this before, we have had an attribution before. But the attribution game in the cyber world is absolutely the most difficult. Um, we've got great capabilities that work on this. The FBI, in terms of its response to you know, particularly things that are happening in our country, domestically, <laughs> um, the capabilities up at U.S. Cyber Command as they you know, try to penetrate these organizations to actually see these tools before they actually launch them. Um, you know, those help, but it's not going to answer every question, probably not even answer every, uh, you know, 50% of them until, you know, we continue to analyze and figure these things out. 
that's a very tough piece to this to exactly say pull this person from this spot because the way the nature of the beast is they can hide anywhere within the cyber ecosystem and use tools and capabilities that they don't physically hold on to. They belong to other people. They're just used as a hot point to be able to launch their capabilities. So, so in effect, we're really working blind when we get attacked. We really, we really, unless we're lucky, we really don't know who's doing it, do we? Well, that's the challenge. Um, in some cases, you know, we can attribute a certain type of attack because we know that, you know, that it was developed in this area and it came from. But again, it's, uh, you know, we don't have an exact precision targeting radar that tells us that the missile was lobbed from here, thus we can attribute it to this. And that's one of the, the problems in the cyber world is that uh, you may think you can attribute, but you may be attributing to the wrong person. Um, because, again, there's so many groups that will even try to disguise themselves as somebody else yet conduct the, uh, the event. Admiral Day, uh, real quickly, we've, we've heard about cybersecurity legislation being put up in Congress, and it seems to have stalled in many instances. Uh, the president's taken, as you said earlier, some executive orders and some executive actions that are going to put into some place some mechanism to beef up cybersecurity. But the question I have for you is, what really needs to be in a piece of cybersecurity legislation that's going to give it teeth and be meaningful in defending our economy and our government against not just state-sponsored cyber attacks, but the poor, bored kid in China living in his mom's basement eating Hot Pockets? Yeah. Well, it, I, I point back to one of my original um, points, and I believe that uh, in this legislative session we're going to see action on the ability for information sharing and liability reduction, you know, addressing the liability concerns that really do prevent this information sharing, particularly between private and public. Um, if we can get over that hurdle, um, that's going to help greatly because the more you feed in for the analysis, at NCCIC of what's going on, the better we're able to figure out, um, you know, here's, you know, what's happening, threat vector, and advise people very, very quickly, you know, not only the public, but the whole entire private sector, that's saying, we're seeing this, this is a threat stream, here's a way to thwart it. And uh, so once we get over this information sharing piece, as well as the liability piece, uh, and I do hope, and I do believe that they will get something done um, in this session to get that out there. It's just got so many recommendations from so many different organizations that says if we can get past this, we believe that we can better understand the entire threat vectors that are coming to this country, analyze it, and be able to push out preventative measures more rapidly uh, out there into the ecosystem. Wow. Uh, Admiral Bob Day, Admiral, thank you very much for joining us today on Backroom Politics. Really appreciate your insight. Yes, it's uh, it's a it's a great time, uh, you know, for working in this industry. But it also, at the same time, each and every day, uh, you know, the concern levels are going up. Um, and uh, I'm just hoping that uh, we continue down the path to. Uh, really strengthen our capabilities, really start looking at uh, our critical infrastructure. Um, and everybody's taken I, I work with the Cyber Commission for Virginia. 
Um, all the states are starting to take this up and have concerns. You know, public groups and private groups are coming together. And I think, again, this is going to be the best way for us to start uh, combating this uh, really uh, challenging situation is get everybody involved, get some of the resources we need put into place, and really get people. Everybody keeps saying, well, this is technologically hard to understand. Yes, it is, but at the same time, there's work we need to do here and uh, get ourselves in a better footing. So appreciate the opportunity to chat with you, and uh, hopefully that gave you some insight. Fantastic. Former DHS and Coast Guard Cyber Executive Admiral Bob Day. Admiral, appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. When we come back, we will be talking about there's going to be a vacancy in a Senate seat in California. What does this possibly mean in 2016? 2015. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
And we're back live here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Back Room Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, we're going to change uh, we're going to change direction for a second. Hey, in case you missed it, if you care, Barbara Boxer's leaving the Senate. Oh, the humanity. <laughs> Congressman Al, I know that you're 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 crying right now. You're you're very upset. Well, she she came uh to Congress about a term after I did and uh got to know her a little bit. And and uh then she went to the Senate. <clears throat> so she disappeared from my ken. <laughs> uh is is, is Alan Moore, as our resident Senate expert, are you surprised by this? Is no, this su- she's sent these signals. She hasn't raised any money. She's 74 years old. She's been there, I think, three terms, plus on top of the House. She's uh, she's a grandmother. She And she's now in the minority. So it, it's, it's not a bad time to say, you know, I'm done here. Um, and, uh, you know... You have senators who leave very deep footprints, and you have those who barely leave a mark in the sand after they leave. And in I'll case, leave it in at the that. Snow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hold on, hold on, wait, wait, Denise, wait a minute. Alan, are you through? Oh, I'm done. I got. I woke. I woke Denise up. That's I know. What I was trying to do. Denise, crap. Oh, Go ahead. Look, I mean, she came to the Senate in a period when women didn't even have bathrooms in that August body. I, I mean, she helped literally break a glass ceiling. Justin, have you ever been told, I'm sorry, there's no female, there's no bathroom for you? Or maybe there's no, one. No, because I'm a guy. And no exactly. Swimming pool exactly. So, you know what, I'm going to give her some credit because she came in along with some other incredible women and smashed through So glass are you ceiling. saying that Senator Boxer's legacy is she got women's toilets in the Senate? No. I'm wow, that, I, I, I gotta tell you, that's pretty impressive. No, smart ass. All right. I had that's that's why I'm a moderator. I know, but what I'm saying is, don't because don't minimize the impact that she has had on bringing female politicians, you know, through the ranks. I mean, a lot of us looked up to her and said, "My God, if she can do this, the rest of us can do this." So there is something to be said. Now, are you going to tell me that she has a lasting cement footprint that we'll all gaze down with in perpetuity? I haven't thought about the bathrooms before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Every time you walk into a women's room in the Senate, you're going to be like, wow, thank I'm you, I'm not going to ever walk into a women's thank room. Thank you, Senator Boxer. <laughs> apparently, just does. Wait, 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 wait a minute. All right, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait, wait, Co- Congressman Al. Wait a minute. Denise is making a point, and... The reason she needs to make the point is exactly the reaction she's getting around up on the six men around this table, which is not to take it seriously and to make fun of it. I, I find that very hard to believe. Carl Tubin, who's next, has not made fun of anything. Carl Tubin. Speaking of the mic, Carl. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll say part of this for a story if I have the guts to tell it. First of all, any senator who, in a state like California, who can stay in three terms should be congratulated. It's one hell of a big state. You've got to do one hell of a lot of things. California elected Governor Moonbeam, what, four times? Governor Moonbeam happens to be a fairly 
good person and a really uh, a been great a great governor. governor. Yeah, he's been an outstanding governor. A fairly good person. Wow. Wow, what a glowing endorsement. No, a great governor. California is one of the hardest states in the country by far to govern. A state where 70% of the budget is dictated by referendum, and he's gotten them out of deficits into actual surplus. I'm not he's an amazing that's job. That's wait a minute. I'm not, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm not critiquing. I'm not critiquing uh, Governor Moonbeam. I'm just saying, you know, it's like, oh my God, they elected somebody three times. They elected Governor Moonbeam every other fall. Bob Hines. Well, they did the same thing with Willie Brown. What can I say? That's true. Mayor of San I Francisco. Think, I think it's fair to note, as Denise did, that she uh, was uh, instrumental in making sure that the facilities on the Senate side were there. That's not much of a uh, of an 18 year contribution. I mean, I think. Oh. Well, I, I don't. Bob, know, that's not true. I don't know of anything that she is actually led or they've been strong about. Denise, you want to take this one? The environment. I, I mean, I, I, the Coast Guard authorization bill almost got held up because of certain environmental rules last year. I mean, she has been an incredibly strong proponent of environmental measures. She has helped make sure that we are a cleaner country that is not quite as dirty as it looked like 18 years ago. And I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about the air and the water that we use every day. And that is true. And you can, you can argue about some of the things that she did on behalf of the environment. She would be proud of what she did. And it's had an effect. So well, that's, that's a worthwhile project. She's, yeah. been, she's then, been active. I stand corrected. Sanitation in the Senate. <laughs> Let's get off that. Dan Lipner. Well, I, and it, it is definitely a, a a a worthy point that her environmental contribution as far as legislation is definitely there. However, that's also partially it's California. California's uh, autom automobile emissions standards became nationwide because of California and California politics dictating, which is part of what's going to make this seat such a free-for-all. It's the largest state in the country, and there are a lot of people very interested. I suspect Daryl Issa, uh, who originally put a lot of dollars out there for the governor's seat until the governor stepped in, I suspect he's going to eyeball this seat. Something awful. Congressman Al, will you write a check to a Senate, a Senate campaign being done by former Chairman Daryl Issa? Oh, You don't have to answer that out. I was just wondering if anybody had a serious question. <laughs> <laughs> Who else is in play? Alan Moore. Who else could be in play for this? Is is, is Schwarzenegger a legitimate candidate for this? No, no, no. He, yeah. he's, he's discredited himself and moved on. But uh, the one person who's jumped in is the current Attorney General, Kamala Harris, who is a, who's an impressive woman. Um, uh Really, according to the, President Obama, the most beautiful, best-looking yeah, DA but, in the country. Yeah, we're not going to hold it against her that, that, a, that a, somebody makes what know, I say? Ma make oh, I'm sorry, AJ blunders uh, uh, in, in his commentary. Um, uh, Gavin Newsom, the Lieutenant Governor, has decided not to run. Those two are, are just a couple years apart in age, and they've been kind of growing up together. Uh, they've 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 watched each other warily, been sort of supportive, never piled on when there was opportunities to do so. 
Um, Newsom has uh, said that he's going to focus on on uh, the next gubernatorial race. Uh, Harris jumped in and said, I'm going to run for the Senate. Uh, remember, California's got this bizarre jungle primary, so-called, where all candidates of all parties have a single primary and the top two vote-getters um, uh, go on the ballot. So the Louisiana... Can, yeah, we have. I mean, you can have weird situations where two members of the same party are in the are, are in the yeah. runoff. That happened in a in a in a, in a couple of uh, noteworthy uh, House uh, races a couple of years ago in California when they had just moved to this. You can also create a, an interesting opportunity for a Republican. I don't know who, but uh, for a Republican to step in and and uh, uh, and, and if you can get two Democrats or more. Uh, this this billionaire uh, Tom Steyer, who is the the biggest fundraiser for or donor, the biggest donor for the Democratic Party in 2012, um, he's he's looking at it. Uh, maybe he'll jump in. We could have a gigantic bloodbath, and that would be really too bad. Of course, from a Republican standpoint, if if, if Democrats rip each other apart with tens of millions of dollars, oh whoa. Um, and uh, <laughs> so you never know, but it, it will probably. So the, have so the one we'll question we have another Democrat. The, 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 the one question, we, the one California. question that keeps coming up, and I heard this question earlier when I brought this up to somebody that we were talking about it was, uh, does anybody see a celebrity, a la a George Clooney, a Matt Damon, or a any other mega star that might be interested in this? I no, think no. it's too expensive. I mean, it's, it's too gonna, expensive for gonna, George Clooney. Yeah. It's going to be a billion-dollar race, not a million. Wow. A billion with a B-dollar race. That means you've got to have lasting power, and you're not going to be flash. You have to have stuff. Carl Tubin. You missed you miss one candidate, and he's talking about it, and that's the present mayor of Los Angeles, and he's got a Garcetti. You think no, no. former mayor, former mayor. Oh, oh, Bill Garosa. Bill Tony Villar. Thinking about it. And it will be the most expensive, probably the most expensive race in California in the history of the state. Wow. I mean, are we really talking a billion-dollar Senate yeah. race? I I find that mind-blowing. It, it no. won't be a billion dollars, but it'll be many, many, many millions. Hundreds no, that, of millions. That's what they were talking about in Politico. I mean, they were, they were saying, because you've got Tom Steyer, who, by, his, by the way, is potentially thinking about running himself. So... He's not going to fund anybody. He may fund himself. So this is ludicrous. I mean, we're talking about the junior Senate seat. If if it does get to a billion dollar race, how dangerous is that for the future, Bob Hines? Well, I don't know that it's dangerous because it probably couldn't happen anyplace else. Congressman Al, does that scare the living so. bejesus out of you that, that we can see a Senate race and not a presidential race? A Senate race at a billion-dollar number? Yes, it does scare me. And uh, I, I, the whole thing, the whole trend toward campaign finance scares the hell out of me. And this is one aspect of it. There are many other aspects of it. And uh, we should we should be afraid, very afraid. So, Denise Kraft? I'm, I'm not surprised. Look at the media market. I mean, it, it's not like you have to go for one town. You have to go for L.A. and San Francisco and Oakland and Santa Barbara and San Diego. I mean, that is an immense media buy. That's just the media. We're not talking about your volunteers and your paid staff and your handouts and, you know, food. That's where the money is. I mean, 
this will be a money-making endeavor. It will be a job. You know, jobs creator? creator? I'm running for Senate. I'm creating jobs. Exactly. Yeah, that's Sweet mother of God. <laughs> Dan Lipner. I, I mean, be, be, before before the we get too hysterical here, they do actually have competitive races statewide in California, including the governor's seat, which is up every four years, and occasionally is actually contested. Right, and the Senate seat and the value of a California Senate seat for to set trends nationwide is remarkable. This is insane! We are talking a billion dollar Senate reign to replace Barbara Boxer. I actually might be high. I actually might be on drugs right now. I can't believe I'm hearing this. Feinstein's in her 80s. What do you think is going to happen when Feinstein retires? I mean, we are looking at a huge shift in California <laughs> politics. A billion dollars. That is bigger than the GNP of major second world countries. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sweet mother of God. What have they done? Yeah, let's not what? get carried away yeah. with the billion dollar yeah. number. Let's do acknowledge that it'll probably be the most expensive race in Senate be, history. Yeah. Yeah. So That's it could be a million, and that could be just as scary. Because if it's a billion, it's some super rich guy who's self-funding. Um, yeah. But like Daryl Issa. Right. But, but like, he doesn't have a billion. Daryl Issa, I'm sure. He has now. That's a pretty good starting yeah, point. Yeah, but, right? really? but, yeah. but wow. he doesn't want to spend it all on, well, on the Congress. So wow. let him spend a hundred. Well, and and you can use your money to raise money, and so it's it's not like you're going to have to pay it all out of your pocket. Yeah, but as you know, Al, the really rich guys have a lot of trouble getting other people to ante up. Yeah, yeah, I can tell you right now, I'm not writing a $500 check to somebody who's got $400 million in their bank account. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were, I'm I, 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 basically, I basically, I basically, I barely can afford HBO. Well, keep in mind, what are you going to do when uh, Mitt Romney comes around and says he'd like uh, 500 bucks? I'll write a $500 check to Mitt Romney. <laughs> and, how much is, and how much is he worth? Uh I'll write a check to five hundred dollars check to Mitt Romney. Actually, let, let me point out. Got to raise a billion. You know, he really yeah. does have to raise, raise a billion. billion. Yeah. Let, let me let me uh, point out one more macro politics problem for Democrats on the side. The 2016 cycle um, and suddenly having to worry about spending money at the state level in California at all. Right. This is something we know. It's unlikely California will be in play for the presidential, but having to spend large amounts of money uh, in the state that we normally go, look, we'll take those electoral votes and say goodbye now. That's not going to happen. And there could be larger fundraising issues for Democrats down the line because of having a presidential race and a Senate race in California. Wow. Bob Hines. From your mouth to God's ear. <laughs> All right. Thanks well, that's yeah, great. <laughs> With that, it's now time for my favorite part of the show. It's Tell Me a Story, where we talk about all the news, innuendo, rumor, and discontent that we hear around the Beltway and out. This is Tell Me a Story. Congressman Al, tell me a story. I'll pick it up later. Okay. Bob Hines, tell me a story. Uh, we now have uh, two senior-type Republicans. Um uh, Mr. Bush and Mr. Romney, who are both indicating they are going to run for president. Uh, kind of interesting. But didn't Mrs. Romney threaten Mitt with like bodily harm, divorce papers, and 
other bodily harm if he ran again? No, it was an empty bottle really? of water, plastic bottle of water. It wasn't glass, so he went ahead. Oh, wow, <laughs> go figure. Carl Tubin, is the story in this decade? Yes, it is. All right, tell me a story, Carl Tubin. We were talking about bathrooms. Yes, we were. And Thank you. Thank you, it's Barbara Boxer. It's down the hall. Everyone Thank you, Barbara Boxer. Everyone said that they've never been in a ladies' room in the, in the House of Senate. Well, one day I was in the meeting in General Cocker's office. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait. I asked you if I asked you if Let this story. No, wait, wait, wait. I just want to clarify this. I asked you if this. No, no, no. I want to hear this. Come on, I want to hear this. Wait, wait, wait. Help me, help you, Carl. Go ahead. Tell me, Carl. I was in a meeting Senator Hoop's office. Senator Hoop's office. Former Senator Hawaii. There is no pun there. There is no pun. I know Danny. I just didn't. I walked out of the office and I just I had to go and I knew that there were two bathrooms. Right by his office. So by office. Senator Akaka's office? Right. So I went into one of them, and I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden the door opens, and I hear these ladies talking to one another. And I said, oh, my God, I'm in the wrong place. How the hell am I going to get out of this one? So Walking out? They, they left. I quickly got up and left. Hoping that no capital police will be following me. <laughs> <laughs> but they're on their way here now because they're looking for you all the time. <laughs> they know Thanks. where you are. Good. Oh, yeah. no, nothing like having our, our members of our roundtable commit A class misdemeanors on the hill while we cover them. Vinny's crap, tell me a story that doesn't involve a misdemeanor. Okay. Well, there was another announcement that was made last week. It was the, uh, the Olympic um, bid announcement. And as somebody who lives in Washington, D.C., all I can say right now is you go Boston. Have fun figuring out how you are going to support all those lovely individuals who will be, you know, visiting you in about 10 years. There's a great, there's a great uh, former professional basketball player, played for the Houston Rockets, and is now currently the assistant coach at his alma mater, Georgetown, named Othello Harrington. Good friend of the show, great friend of mine. In the words of Othello Harrington, no chance does Boston get that. No chance. Uh, Alan Moore. That's true. I will say that. Alan Moore, tell me Yeah, I'm going to go back to this world of terrorism a moment. We talked a lot about about Paris. It was only a couple of months ago, we'll remember, that that the 9-11 of Pakistan occurred when 130 kids were murdered in a a school. uh, in 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 Pakistan and and I'm you know although we tend to move past that pretty quickly they have not in in, in Pakistan there was another absolutely horrendous event that occurred just a few days ago in northeastern Nigeria this Boko Haram group that kidnapped uh, sixty or seventy young girls maybe it was a bigger number um, killed. An estimated 2,000 people. 2,000 people. Um, and, uh, and it kind of got lost in, uh, in the French news, and it kind of got lost because it's in this remote part of, of uh, North, uh, northeastern Africa. They've got elections in Nigeria coming up in mid-February, um, 
Uh, it's again not clear what these crazy Boko Haram people are up to, but I just is good luck. Let me ask you a real quick question: yeah. is, is good luck, Jonathan, in danger of losing yes, the presidency? He's, he's, he's got he's got a unified opposition for the first time, and this was kind of a surprise. He's the sitting president. He's running again. The opposition, uh, against all odds, joined together to create a single party. It it, it is ripe for uh, for for for. A democratic change is probably more right for uh, electoral irregularities. Um, we'll see, but but this uh, this kind of horror, this this escalation, um, re- really is part of this international uh, campaign of fear that we were hearing about. Right, Dan Littner, tell me a story. Uh, well, in the world of sports and politics, it was a bad week for people and video and the and the fates of Tony Romo and Chris Christie seem kind of linked being that neither of which are going to advance to the next stage uh, both for being what's been caught on video Tony Romo for the catch that wasn't thanks to review and Chris Christie since he seems to be looking for the Chris Christie Jerry Jones ticket in 2016, but that's probably not going to happen either. Wasn't the hugging just brought tears to your eyes? You know what? It's a good thing that you have an impartial moderator on this show, because normally I would have shut that congressman out. I'm shocked at you. Um, uh, Actually, I don't have a story this week. Congressman Al, tell me a story. It's occurred to me that around this table today, we have discussed two things. We've discussed uh, cyber security and and terrorism. Two kind of new, quote, foreign policy, quote, defense issues. We're all of a generation that we're used to talking about this nation versus that nation and what they're doing and what their military is and all the rest. Uh, I'm sure that's not going to disappear as something we should keep our eye on, but we are now approaching two different things. Both both of these are not in the are not within the area in which we normally think about foreign policy, and we're going to have to do a lot of creative thinking to figure out how to deal with these and at the same time keep our military. One of the things that's sure to come along is they take a lot of money from the military and stick it on, on going after cybersecurity, for example. Well, uh, that may not be a very wise thing to do. So it's a whole new world out there. Well, I'll leave that to be the last word this week. On behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Carl Tubin, Denise Kraft. Alan Moore and Dan Lipner. I am your moderator, impartial as I am, Justin Russell. I will be back next week with the rest of our roundtable as we talk about the latest inside and outside of politics. And we will do it live from here in Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital. Bob? The place to be. You can follow us on Twitter at Backroom Politics. You can follow us on the web, www.backroompolitics.org. Or you can email your comments, concerns, or your great Senate bathroom stories to me, 
Justin at backroompolitics.org. Have a great week, America. We'll see you next Tuesday.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.